0: Welcome back to Venture Studio, the podcast where host Dave Lerner, entrepreneur, angel investor in 60-something companies and director of entrepreneurship at Columbia University, interviews the angel investors and venture capitalists who make up New York City's entrepreneurial ecosystem. I am your producer, Kevin Weeks. In this week's episode, Dave interviews Paul Martino, founder and general partner at Bullpen Capital, one of the pioneers in post-seed round funding. Remember to subscribe to Venture Studio on iTunes so you never have to miss an episode. As always, you can find us on Twitter at Venture Studio, and you can listen to prior episodes at VentureStudio.org or on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Paul founded Bullpen in 2010 and has led several of its key investments, including an investment in FanDuel, the leader in daily fantasy sports. Prior to starting Bullpen, Paul was a founder of four companies and an active angel investor in companies such as Zynga, Udemy, and PayNearMe. In today's episode, Paul discusses how the herd mentality of most venture investors presented a huge opportunity for Bullpen, how to effectively manage a board, and what it's like to be coached by Bill Campbell. Now, without further ado, let's head on up to the Venture Studio office with Dave Lerner and Paul Martino.
1: you in the office, baby. Paul, great to have you with us. How are you? doing great today. Why don't we start by you telling us the story of Bullpen Capital? You know, how did it start? Tell us from the beginning.
2: Yeah, it's a funny story, actually. I, I wasn't sitting around going, man, I want to be a venture person. Um, I was CEO of Aggregate Knowledge, which is the fourth startup company I had done. And one of my early investors and advisors was a guy named Mike Maples, and I helped Mike uh, get get into the Silicon Valley network when he moved out here in 2004, 2005 from from Austin. And we stayed friends all this time. We invested together, did a couple deals. He called me up. He said, Martino, I'm looking for my first partner here. I want to grow Floodgate to be a, a big franchise. And this is the end of 2009, beginning of 2010. I'm like, Mike, I have no desire to be be a venture guy. This is not really what, what my career path is. I'm looking for what my next gig is going to be. I'm going to step down as CEO of my company and let me go figure out what next company I want to go start. I'm like, okay, great, but here, take a look at my numbers and my marks. Um, You know, this is a pretty neat firm I'm running here. Mm So I looked at them, and I'm a first-round capital limited partner since, you know, 0405, since, since just about the beginning of the fund, I Forget which the first one I'm in. I'm in first round one. So I had some of that data. I had Mike's data. I called up a couple other buddies, and I called up the guys at True, and I called up Jeff Clavier over at SoftTech, and I said, you know, I'm a data guy. My, my, my PhD works in predictive modeling and high-performance computing. And so I did a little data analysis project, and I went back, and I presented my results to a couple people. I said, look, guys – This is a really interesting thing. There's like 20 of you super angels right now, but it's cheap to start. I'll bet there'll be 100 of you five years from now, and there'll be a big mismatch between the the number of seed-funded deals and the number of Series A-funded deals. And so just looking at four data sets back in 2009, it was eminently easy to predict that the Series A crunch would happen. Now, fast forward six years later, there were 325 funds. So I was off by an order of three. I told Mike there'll be 100 of you guys you know, It turned out that there were 325 of them six years later, and the Series A crunch, the depth of it was crazier than anybody thought. Right now, the graduation rate from seed to Series A is less than 10%, somewhere between 6 and 8% across the entire industry. And it used to be more like a third to even a half for some of the best funds. And so, so, so Mike looked at me when I showed him this little dataset. He said, "Paul, oh, I got bad news for you. The only way you're ever going to make money on this insight you have is to go start your own fund." And that is how Bullpen got started because I, I really wasn't planning to go this route. But the entrepreneur in me actually found this as the next entrepreneurial endeavor, as opposed to, "Wow, I've got to that stage in my life where it's time to give back and give be a venture guy thing."
1: You started Bullpen in 2010 with, with this premise. Explain the premise that you were operating under. I understand that, that, that you knew that there was going to be an explosion in seed, but what was your premise?
2: Okay. So, so there's, the, there's the first half of the puzzle. And I, you know, I started trying with Mark Pincus way back in the day. And Mark taught me a great lesson as being an entrepreneur. He says, go swim in the right pond. You know, it's not always clear how you execute once you get into that pond, but go swim in the right pond and good things will happen for you as an entrepreneur. And so I knew that this was the place to play. You, the, the 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 unowned spot of the board in the venture ecosystem was going to be between seed and A. I didn't know what that meant when I started to fund, but I got my two buddies, Rich and Duncan, to quit their day jobs. Rich started Electronic Arts back in 82. Duncan started CoVAD back in 94. We had invested as angels for a while, and we said, let's go figure this out. Because as much as the math told us that this is where the opportunity was going to be, we didn't know how to play it. Did it mean we do second seeds? Did it mean we do pivots? Do we save companies from going bankrupt? What, we, had, we had no idea. Other than that was the place to go play. And for most of 2011 and 12, we were making it up as we went along. We didn't know. And most of the mistakes that got made in the fund were in 2011 and 2012. We didn't know what we're doing. Somewhere around the middle of 2012, we figured it out, though. You only invest after products got fit. You only invest in companies that have trajectory. You invest in companies that are 9 to 12 months away from their milestone from the Series A funds ready to go in. And at that point, we really figured out. We put it right up on our website. You have to have an institutional seed investor. you got to be 9 to 12 months away from a milestone. and you got to have product market fit. That was the formula. And it took us about a year and a half after we slammed in that right pond to figure that formula out.
1: And that first fund, I mean, it's already being talked about. It, it has the appearance of being potentially quite an epic fund. How do you see it now, looking at the first fund?
2: Yeah, no, I, I, I really appreciate you saying that. I mean, that first fund could be absolutely one of the best funds in all of venture for that vintage year. We started it like the day or two be, the day or two before Christmas 2010. So we called it a 2011 fund, even though technically it was started the last week or two of 2010. But in the 2011 vintage, that fund should perform with the absolute best funds anywhere. I mean, we've got... FanDuel, Ipsy, Namely, Double Dutch, Life 360 is four or five of our headline deals. And even on top of that, we then have our next four or five deals. Companies like App Boy and Jump Ramp Games. And and you just go down that portfolio and you go, Wow, this strategy really worked. And you know, the only thing that kept us up at night doing fund two was man, oh man, how are we gonna ever repeat what we did in
1: fund one? Again, just to stress, in this first fund, once you figured it out, a lot of these looks like several potentially billion dollar companies in that cohort you were getting in pre-series A 12 to 18 months ahead of series A for these these build rounds as as I've heard one of your partners call them is that correct that's right that- yeah, that's absolutely right so here let, let me tell you the story um, I'll tell you the
2: story of Namely sitting right there in New York City so so Gunderson Detmer of all people Matt Stratz is the CEO of Namely and his lawyer calls up bullpen. He says, guys, look, I heard you're doing this new fund, doing things between C and A. I've got this really cool deal. This guy's doing great in HR, but he's a little frustrated because every venture person's telling him, I don't want to do HR. Uh, it's not a category I want to be in. Just meet the guy. So I meet Matt. We meet at the at the famous coffee shop there in in New York yeah. in the middle of summer. It, it, it's I mean it's literally like 110 degrees. Right. I'm sitting there thinking, oh my god, this is this is this is like murder. He tells he tells me what he's doing. I look at his numbers. I'm like, well, your post product market fit. You've got a good angel syndicate. Uh, and he looks at me and goes, Paul, look, I'm 90 days away from I'm 90 days away from being out of money. And I'm looking at my like, this doesn't make any sense. And so, you know, we ran a small fund. Back then, fund one ended up being $25 million. But when I went Matt, we only had eight million of the twenty-five under management. So I literally had an eight million dollar fund at this point. We eventually added more to more firepower. We got to twenty-five million. And I told Matt, I said, Matt, your company's kicking butt, you have great metrics. The idea that you're going to do HR for everybody who can't be in an SAP system, that's a great market, and you're basically selling it Excel spreadsheets. I was like, the fact that the whole venture industry thinks this is out of favor and boring, well, well, too bad for them. Let's go do the deal. And ultimately, we got layer to participate because we wanted to have a, a New York uh, fund in there. So layer and us split that round after the initial seed was done. Uh, you know, And we're in that company at a $6 million pre. company is worth – I mean – I don't remember what the post money is now, but you know, Sequoia put fifty-five million dollars into that company three years later. Matrix came in after True came in, and this looks like it, it could be one of the all-time great venture outcomes in New York City's history. And we're in that deal three years ago at a six million pre. Matt stood up at our annual meeting and conference last year and he said the following thing, which which I think was one of the highlights of my career. He stood up, he says, look, guys. I would be sitting out in the audience like you as an employee if it wasn't for the guys at Bullpen because I was 90 days away from running out of money. And if they didn't do the deal that they did, I'll bet I'm out of money, namely does not exist, and I'm looking for a job.
1: Fascinating. What about uh, yeah, FanDuel is one of the sort of most prominent companies you're involved in. It's been in the process. Sure. So tell, tell us a little about the FanDuel story. Yeah,
2: so I knew FanDuel when it used to be called HubDub. So HubDub was the original business, which was a prediction market. If you remember uh, companies like Trade Sports and, uh, and uh, over at Betfair, those markets where you could bet on things like who's going to be the next pope. You'd bet on the news and things of the kind. That was the original business model of HubDub. And I got introduced because I used to be on the board of a company called Zvents which uh, got bought by StubHub, and they had a, a, a head of business development named Warwick Taylor. And Warwick says, you got to meet this guy, Nigel. He's, he's in Scotland. He's doing this prediction market. It's right up your alley. You're, you know, you're a predictive modeling guy. I was still CEO of Aggregate Knowledge at the time. Um, and so I met Nigel and Hubdub when it was you know three or four of them in a bedroom. Basically, they just quit McKinsey. Um, and so I knew the company back in 09 before they even entered the fantasy space. And, you know, I stayed in touch with Nigel. He'd give me a call every once in a while looking for advice. And eventually he called me up one time and said, you know, it's getting about 2011. He's like, look, Paul, you're running the fund now. You know, my, my business is kind of kicking butt and everyone's giving me the cold shoulder. I was like, well, you know, Nigel, maybe it's time you actually come in instead of me just being a friend of yours, come in and actually pitch to partners. We looked at his numbers. His numbers were unbelievable. We're like, you're doing a million dollars in revenue. You're acquiring customers for $45. He had 10,000 users on his website, and he was making that kind of money. We're like, how many many sites with 10,000 users are making that amount of money? And we're like, what, what are we missing? I, I literally call up Matt Atko at Data Collective. I said, dude, we have to go do this deal. Could you please tell me what I'm missing? Because Nigel told me he pitched 78 venture funds and he's gotten 77 no's so far. And, and, and you know, so I'm new to the business. I've only been in the business one year. I called my buddy, Matt. Matt looks at it and he says the same thing to me. He says, he says you'd be crazy not to do this deal. I said, okay, well, I'm going to be the one crazy guy in the venture business to do this deal. Nine months after we do that deal at an eight million dollar valuation, comcast comes in for twenty eight million another nine months later, a shamrock comes in for seventy five million another nine months later KKr comes in for two hundred and fifty million dollars and and this is you know this is going to be potentially one of the all time Great exits in sports and entertainment ever in in the venture ecosystem and and everybody just absolutely missed this and guess what you 're starting to hear the pattern there 's a lot of stuff in the bullpen portfolio that just everybody else missed
1: but let, let me ask you this: I mean, you were new in venture, of course you know you 've been doing a lot of companies and you 've been around for a while, but you know early on in your venture career, you hear seventy seven out of seventy eight funds have said no. <laughs> Right. What what is it about you and your partners right. that that had the 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 I guess the self confidence to say, no, we're we're seeing correctly. This this is something we're going to do. Did you did you not have some doubts?
2: Of course I did, especially since it was so early in my portfolio. I mean, FanDuel is like the eighth venture investment I ever made, right? I mean, it's you know yeah. we're about 50, 50 yen. So of course, and that's why I kind of tell the anecdote about you know calling Matt up, hey Matt, check my work on this thing. But think about it, Matt and I were original angel investors in a little company called Zynga, yes. and we knew how important this kind of Evergreen game was fantasy is 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 like other evergreen games. You know, every year you play. It's not like Farmville, right? Farmville is a hit-driven business, and after a year or two, it fades away. Fantasy is something these players play every year. You know, we did a survey at FanDuel. Something like something like eighty percent of our players said they, they they plan on playing the product for the rest of their life. There are very few products that have that kind of stickiness. So so you know, I know this from Zynga. I'm an early venture investor. Yes, this is a category that's scaring people. And by the way, the reason it scared people was all the typical stuff. It's a Scotland-based team. It's a husband and wife founding team. Oh, um, it's, it's it's fantasy sports. It had all these it had all these violations of the traditional exactly. venture mythology. Yes. Right? Right. But you know what it didn't have? It it what it did have was it had awesome metrics. And so what was it that we did that everybody else did? Since we were either young enough, dumb enough, innovative enough, or contrarian enough, I don't know what it is yet, we were able to thumb our nose at all the traditional rules of thumb of venture and only look at the Excel spreadsheet. And if you looked at only the Excel spreadsheet and didn't know what the business was of FanDuel, you would have been fighting to give them a dollar. But since it was fantasy sports out of Scotland, blah, 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 all the, all the violations of the traditional venture ecosystem, no one paid enough attention to the damn Excel spreadsheet to see that this was an all-time potentially awesome business the way Zynga was in those first couple of years of the company. So what did we do? We ignored venture mythology, and we looked at the data. And that is, again, the hallmark of how the fund runs. We'll go into a category. We did. We did a cosmetics company out of Los Angeles called Ipsy. We did an HR company out of New York when no one wanted to do HR. So almost all of our deals have a little bit of a, you know, thumb in their nose at the venture industry. A little bit of a contrarian streak to them. You know, when everybody's in the category, that's exactly when we don't want to
1: be there. My 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 thought here is, you guys look at it through your own lens. You don't care what anybody else thinks. And, and you operate with conviction. You go in, you see something you like, you look at the numbers, you don't care where it is. I mean, for most funds, they would immediately disqualify FanDuel as being in Scotland and it's out, outside of their mandate. Uh, what is it about you guys that gives you the confidence to operate like that? Why?
2: it goes back to that data analysis project I told you about at the beginning. I told Mike, you're going from 20 funds to hundred funds. And you know, Mike, when he was the um, the I forget what his title was CMO of motive down in Austin. He competed with, he competed with, uh, with um, a guy named Mark Pincus, who was the CEO of SupportSoft. They were our trials. This is actually how I know Mike. I got introduced to Mike through Pincus. And, and one time Mike came out to Silicon Valley and Mark asked if I could kind of, you know, introduce him to some friends. That's, that's how we met. When Mike was the CMO, he had a rule. Don't be better in enterprise software, be different. Being 10% better than another product is really hard. Being 10% faster is really hard, but being different is way easier. And that was the same challenge I issued back to Mike in the venture industry. I'm like, there's 100 of these funds, well, it turns out there's 300. If all you are is better than them, Man, oh man, that's a tough sell. I'm 10% better than first round. I'm 5% better than Felice's. That's tough. But if you go out and hang up a shingle and say, I do something different than everybody else, man, you get some pretty interesting deals to show up to your door. And you got to back it up. I mean, if you're going to say, I'm different than everybody, I have this analytic approach, I invest between seed and A, call it post-seed now, we didn't have a name back then, all that kind of stuff. But you hang up a shingle, you better go do the deals that people are scared to do right? You, you better, you better go do that. That's our whole branding is that we're going to do a deal. Maybe it's a little hairy, maybe it's out of geography, maybe it's in a category no one's ever made any money in. You know, we don't care because if we build a portfolio of rapidly growing awesome metrics in our portfolio, so that fund one, fund one is going to do almost a billion dollars in revenue. Now that fund is 2011. Fanduel, Ipsy, namely, et cetera. No, no one company is doing more than like two hundred or so million dollars of it. So we have four or five companies out of thirty shots on goal that are going to do two three hundred million dollars two to three years after our investment, and and that's because that's what we focus on: acceleration of revenues, early traction, potentially crazy markets outside of the venture ecosystem. Because it's amazing to us how groupthink the rest of our businesses. It's amazing to me, right? It, it, there should have at least been one other fund who wanted to do FanDuel. At least one, right? Come on. There there could have been two out of 78. But no, once you get those first 10 no's, you know you're going to get 50 no's.
1: Right, because the herd is talking to each other by then
2: you got it. You got it. And I just said, that doesn't make, that doesn't make a lick of sense to me. It means that there's a ton of, there's a ton of both false positives and there's a ton of false negatives. The false bullpen in many ways focuses on the false negatives in the ecosystem. Oh, by the way, there's tons of false positives. You know, open source database is hot as hell. And everybody's given term sheets at a hundred pre to companies without a product yet, because it's so hot. Well, guess what? We're not going to go do open source databases this quarter because everybody else is doing that. Good luck. God, bless you but we're going to go do the next crazy off the beaten path category and oh by the way this takes conviction it also takes a lot of operating experience me rich duncan and then my new partner eric who just came and joined us from re i know
1: eric, I know eric from days. Right? yep
2: we started 14 companies between us you know a dsl company a game company a predictive modeling company a computer graphics company you know You've got to have a breath of entrepreneurial knowledge to be able to have the balls to go do right. fantasy sports one day, cosmetics the next day, and um, event planning, double Dutch in, in San Francisco. And I just don't think most venture people are built for doing the kinds of stuff we do. It's a little bit blue collar. It's a little bit in the trenches. It's a little bit out of favor. And you know what? That's not what venture people wake up in the morning to do. Most venture people wake up in the morning and go, I'm going to go to Y Combinator demo day and and and, and the, the the prettiest company at the dance is the one I'm going to invest in and that's the that is the opposite of what we do
1: right we're i think we've reached the 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 beating heart of why you guys are different and what your DNA is all about right there it's that operational experience i heard a story that your original name was going to be subversive ventures true or not <laughs> right
2: so we yeah well, absolutely it's true and i actually it's very funny um duncan davidsons daughter um, Julie who goes by Julie Logan is now one of the one, uh, on the management team over at Giphy, uh, a company really taken off and so she's got great artistic skills et etc and we, she, we were over at Duncan's house brainstorming the thing and, and she's like no, I'll make some logos up for you and she she took like the you know the industrial you know communist manifesto fist in your face you, you know yeah. you, you know what I'm talking about I know. she took that logo and she made this little logo for us called subversive ventures with this like fist right in your face and we're like we're like I know we can't go to market like this but that's going to be our code name for now and so our original decks were this like you know that 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 fist of god image with with subversive and you know we knew we wouldn't go to market that way but it spoke to the mantra of who me and duncan and rich were we weren't going to be successful by being prettier or nicer or better than the other people we were going to go and do something different we were gonna, we were gonna kind of, you know, put that fist right, right in people's face and say, hey, this is who we are, this is what we're doing. And you know what? If it doesn't work, we're all gonna go home and do our next company because we're entrepreneurs at heart. And that's the, you know, and so. And, but if, we're, but if we're right, man, oh man, that's a lot of fun because it's so much more fun to make money when you're right, being contrarian, than when you're 10% better than somebody else. Because yeah, you get to stand up and say. I was the only guy talking about this thing for two, three, four years. You all thought I was crazy, and it worked. But, oh, by the way, we finally got our real name from Chad Durbin, who used to pitch for the Phillies as a bullpen pitcher. He's in our office before we have a name. He's pitching us on a company called Showcase Youth Sports, matches uh, scholarships to um, – uh high school athletics right and so if you want to figure out for a lefty who pitches 80 what school would match blah 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 so he's in our office he says something to us like this he goes hey if i get this right martino you're doing for startup companies what i do for starting pitchers he was the sixth and seventh inning guy and me and doug and rich look at each other go we gotta call this thing bullpen because functionally (laughs) functionally that is what we're doing and right. Durbin, who actually pitched, you know, he's a World Series ring from the 08 Phillies. Right. You know, he, he was the guy who basically pointed out that our job was akin to what he does. And, and, and most World Series teams
1: have a pretty dang good bullpen in them. Oh my God, it's all true. And, and real quick, you, when did you raise your second fund? How big is it?
2: Uh, so, the second fund is about $35 million. And that was done then right at the end of 13, beginning of 14. Uh, and since we're doing an I mean, the best way to describe funds one and two is this was an experimental business. We did not know if the model would work. We didn't know how much reserves to put in it. We even told our first CEOs in the fund. I, I always joke, Sisley was our first deal, got bought by Salesforce nine months later, and now uh, Alex Barr is the CEO of Campaign Monitor. Um, it, I even told him, I said, Alex, this is an experimental fund. I have a $500,000 check to lead you around. This may be the only deal we ever do, and you may never see another penny for me because I don't have any reserves for you. So, oh, by the way, that's a real fun way to get your fund off the ground, but we thought it was important to tell our CEOs that this is an experimental model and we might behave very differently. And so that really extended for basically the first five years of the fund. So fund two, you can almost think of as more of an extension of fund one, kind of small checks prove that the model works. And we're now, we're now gearing up to do fund three and fund three uh, with the vintage, it'll be sometime, maybe middle of 16. That's going to feel more like a traditional venture fund from a structure standpoint, from a size and reserves and the way that you do the companies. Whereas one and two were a grand experiment. And I think we can now safely say the experiment worked.
1: Now you're going to get into portfolio management. You're going to do some follow-ons and all that. Yes. It, we're going we're gonna to get a lot smarter about that. It was a very ad hoc system. We
2: had to drop a whole bunch of special purpose vehicles. You get a company like FanDuel that's going and raising money at that. Oh, yeah. you, you get pro-rata rights. We got pro-rata rights bigger than the, the size of our fund. Right. And so what do, you, what, what do you do when you have a pro-rata right that's bigger than the size of your fund? Well, you drop a special purpose vehicle. You pass the hat. So there was a lot of stuff that it wasn't that we didn't know how to do it. Duncan was actually a vantage point for years. You know, he had been at a big fund. He knew how to do these things, but we weren't configured operationally or from a capital base to do these things. So it's one of the reasons we love that we hired Eric, got him in the fold. He came from RE. Duncan has the the, the big company kind of consigliere experience from from Vantage Point. So now finally in Fund Three, I think we can really say the the model works. Let's reserve it right. Let's do rational follow ons. And, and, and we're really excited about the, the fact that we got here because, you know, like I said, we did it as entrepreneurs, not as fund managers. And now we got to be fund managers. And I think that transition makes a lot of sense to do.
1: Uh, let's shift gears a little bit. I, I want to get into the current landscape in a minute. But before yep. we do that, walk us through from your perspective, what was going on the last five, six years, the craziness of the seed market, and then let's back into what the current atmosphere is like. But let's start back five, six years ago when things started to get a little crazy.
2: So Josh Koppelman wrote about this at length recently. He points out first-round data, which I think he's Josh is, in my opinion, the absolute best seed fund, really pioneered it back 0405. He says he started his fund, and when he started his fund 0405, um, the valuations were one-third what they were once he got to the, the beginning of that crazy period. I don't remember if it was benchmarked to 2012 or to 2014. Because the market softened a little bit once you get to fourteen and fifteen, but the valuations increase three x over the duration of him going from first round one to first round four or five, um, and, and that, that that makes sense. If you went from twenty super angels or institutional seed funds to three hundred, there's going to be there's going to be some increase in valuations at that stage. Um, and so if he was paying three before, he's paying nine now. Um, and, and we went through uh, a tremendous bubble, really just an unabated gain in valuations from really the fall of 08 right after the financial debacle all the way to 2016. So we had about seven, eight years right up. Is, you know, you know, even though the, the 08 debacle hurt the rest of the economy, after about a quarter of two in Silicon Valley, everything was back to systems normal by about Q2 of 09. So so the 08 thing really didn't hurt us all that much in the venture business, and you take that as the bottom. is great, too, ironically. Uh, Sequoia puts out, as good times are over, Remember, yeah. right, right. The, the irony of that is that marked the bottom, not the top. Right? They, they put out a message saying, oh, I'm calling the top. They, they actually called the bottom. Right, um, right. You know, and Sequoia is the best fun probably in the history of the business, so it is fun to get a chance to every once in a while I'll poke fun at them because they're so damn good at what they do. But they, they got that one backwards. They actually called the bottom, not the top. Um, and so we went through that. And so we saw a softening of the market really at about the end of 14. And we definitely saw a much more return to normal metrics on the seed and middle stage stuff in 15. Now, the late stage stuff in 14 and 15 stayed crazy. The unicorns, the $250 million, 300, million, $500 million rounds, that stayed crazy. But um, if you look at the data for Mattermark, et cetera, you can really see a slowdown in seed almost 18 months ago. And so a lot of the seed funds would tell you 15 was the back to normal and 16 is the really, okay, now we're back to our knitting now. Um, You know, the valuations aren't crazy. CEO comes in and says, I've got a group of angels that do the deal at 20 pre. You tell them, thank you, God bless. I'm going to go, you know, you want to do the deal at six, I'm your guy.
1: And, and okay. So, so that brings us to now we're in 2016, you know, everyone's saying it's, it's going to be rough. People are having to really focus on their burn rate, uh, board meetings are getting tense. How do you How do you guys look at it? Absolutely. So the people
2: who are roadkill once the market changes are high burn rate companies whose business models have not converged. They're, if I'm the CEO of a company with a high burn rate and I'm not sure of my unit economics, they're, they're, they're the people who better be cutting and they better be cutting fast. Now, you're break even or bumping your head close to it, You can ignore all the all the machinations you don't need the capital markets as a matter of fact once those companies go under who have those high burn rates you're going to finally get to hire some of those people you haven't been able to hire so so the things we worry about in our portfolio are which of our companies have high burn rates and guess what there aren't many that have high burn rates because the whole bullpen model is we give you nine to 12 months of money to get to your next milestone by definition, you're a low burn rate company, and the round after us is led by one of the big companies that finances that finances you to the tune of what you need to do. Um, and so, we're going to focus increasingly not on the ability of our companies to raise their next round in nine to 12 months, but when we make an initial investment, make sure that the company has the chance to go profitable in nine to 12 months. It doesn't mean that's the right strategy, but if you invest in a company, think about it, you invest in a company's burn rate to 100 grand. Say they're making 100 grand and their burn rate's 100 grand. Uh, so, so, so 200 gross burn, 100 net burn because they're making a 100. Mm-hmm. You know that company with two million dollars is a lot of options. They can go invest in some sales. They can get to break even. They can do a whole bunch of things. So think of a bullpen round going into a company burning a hundred, making a hundred, put three million dollars into that company, let the burn rate go up to 150, 175 before the sales come in to get to break even. You look for companies like that. You're going to be in great shape in this market condition because those companies can control their own destiny. Now, you contrast that to a company like a, you know, like a Zenefits that's been in the, the news, right? Now, get about all the legal stuff on Zenefits? My guess is a company like that is burn rate monthly is so massive that if the music stops in the capital financing markets, they're in deep trouble because – I don't know what the numbers are, but how much are they burning a month versus what they're bringing in? I'll bet it's the kind of company burning $2 million a month or something, and you sit there and go, well, I need another $50 million to even run my operations next year. That's the kind of company you do not want to be in once once this, once this market condition changes, which in my opinion, we saw cracks of it 18 months ago and the way the capital markets behaved December, January, February, I think it's pretty clear we're on the, we're in the other side of the market now. Is this a little correction before another leg up or is this the real bear market? I don't know. I don't pretend to know how to predict that. But I know that once the derivative changes, you better start making sure your companies are configured right.
1: All right. So that's the, that's the snapshot of how you're dealing with the portfolio companies at bullpen. What about new opportunities? How do you guys look at new opportunities in 2016 in this uncertain market?
2: We do, we are doing the exact same thing with the exact same business with only one very small variable, which is the back end metrics being able to get the profitability. That is the only difference in what we're doing. And, Think about it. When I told Mike Maples back in the day I was going to do this fund, I conceived of this as a bear market fund. I did not conceive of bullpen as a bull market fund. It was a bear market fund. The crunch at Series A meant that capital was scarce for the round you were looking for, by definition, a bear market strategy. So the fact that we made this work as well as we did in a bull market is in some ways the surprise of the fund. This is the market condition we always assumed where our fund would flourish. So as much as I, I'm not a person uh, who wants to engage in schadenfreude on anybody, I love when stuff's up into the right. In many ways, there's a part of us that's chomping at the bit to see how well the strategy's going to work in a more bear market, which is what we conceived of it for. So we, we're not only ready, we've been ready since the day the fund got started for this. Again, a very contrarian thing. Many funds are momentum players, and when the music stops, they go home and don't do any deals. We're going to be doing deals at the same pace now that we were doing last year, the year before and the year before, because this is the day we've been waiting for to some extent. Uh, and the momentum players, you know, they're probably already out playing golf. And, you know, I, I heard a couple of entrepreneurs call me up and say, Paul, you know, I pitched a fund and they told me we're not going to do any new deals in Q1. I'm like, you know, I, if I ever say to an entrepreneur, I'm, I'm closed for business this quarter because of market conditions, you know, maybe I'm going to go look for a job.
1: Yeah, I, I've talked to a few people off the record. They won't say this publicly. They're they're telling me I'm keeping my pockets in you know I'm keeping my hands in my pockets for the next six months and watching how this shakes out. So if if I'm an entrepreneur or a founder listening to you talk right now, bullpen's open for business, what do I need to have? The same kind of things you were talking about before? Exact uh, same thing. Pro- product market fit, what else? Product market
2: fit. You've got to have a near-term milestone that gets you to a, a serious company. So I'll give you an example. On the SaaS side, a lot of our companies are doing their first million in revenue, You know, doing $75,000 a month, $100,000 a month. But you know, it, they, they rumbled and stumbled, and they didn't quite figure out their sales model. But, you know, they come in office and go, hey, you know, Martino, I, you know what? I can grow this thing 3 to 4x a year, and you know what? I can do 000, 000 a million-dollar quarter next, next year. So you need know, you a CEO who can go from a million-dollar a year to a million-dollar a quarter, that's post-product market fit by definition because they can start talking that way, where a lot of their money's going to sales and marketing instead of uh, uh, product development, that's our kind of company. And oh, by the way, they're going to need money because the Series A funds are going to get more risk-averse. The Series A funds got risk-averse over this bubble the last five years. They're going to be even more risk-averse on the backside of the bubble. And, and they're going to come back and go, no, no, come back with $2, $2 million a quarter instead yeah. of a $1 million a quarter. And you know we better find companies that can get to those kinds of metrics Uh, and and basically get them through the desert. You know, a guy named Chris Duvos conceived of a model like Bullpen when he was a limited partner at TIFF, and he called the idea Canteen Capital. He was envisioning a day like this where the Series A funds would get so risk-averse that you'd need to, you you know, you're in the desert, and you need your Canteen to get to the other side. And I think that, that his idea of Canteen Capital is very much the mindset that Bullpen will have in the bear market we got to give you enough water in that canteen so you can get to the other side. And you know what? That other side might be a lot further away than you think because of risk aversion. So you better be able to be profitable, break even, and tell the capital markets, I don't need your money.
1: Fantastic. Okay, guys, you heard it here. Switching gears again, uh, y- you've done like four companies. You're a very successful entrepreneur. I know for one of your companies, at least, the legendary Bill Campbell was your coach. Oh, uh, that, the, Yeah. You know, For those of you who don't know, this is Bill Campbell, the the secret coach of Silicon Valley, as they say. He was CEO and chairman of Intuit. Um, He's a legend in the Valley. He was Steve Jobs' best friend. He's been the coach to the who's who of, you know, the Silicon Valley elite, Larry and Sergey from Google and many others. He was your coach for a while, Um, but he's very quiet about it, and he doesn't. Uh, he's not public about all the stuff he does. Give us a, a window, if you don't mind, into what it's like to be coached by Bill Campbell.
2: So before I do that, I got to give you the one word of warning. Okay. Bill hates Bill hates press because every time he's in the press, he gets more phone calls asking for his services. Yeah, I so <laughs> I, I'm sure that I'm going to get a mean phone call at some okay. point going, Martino, what were you doing talking about me? But you know what? Uh, you know what? I'm, I'm happy to, because Bill is a guy who deserves all the plaudits he gets. He absolutely does. He's a quiet, introspective guy. Uh, he doesn't like a lot of publicity, et cetera. So that's why I'm giving you the warning. Right. But, you know, but, you know, this is one of the things I'll be able to tell my grandkids, right? I mean, what is, this is truly one of those things I'll be able, You know, the guy who was, you know, the, the guy who was in Steve Jobs' office in the morning was in my office in the afternoon giving me advice. And that was true. I mean, you know, he, he would literally come to my office at Aggregate Knowledge up in San Mateo, you know, and, and, and in the morning he was over at Google, in the afternoon he was with Steve Jobs, and, you know, and, and he would tell you, he would give you advice from, you know, he'd anonymize it so there'd be no confidentiality of any kind, but, but he would give you advice of issues facing those kinds of companies, and you'd sit there and you'd go, wow, I mean, this is amazing, the window into all of Silicon Valley I can get by, by working with a guy like this is tremendous because his data set, the, the, the people he was on the front line with. So I remember one time, one this is just an example where Bill was useful. I realized I had the wrong sales guy running aggregate knowledge. And, you know, I called Bill. I said, Bill, you know, I need your help. I got the wrong sales guy running the company. What do I do? And you know, Bill sits down and goes, Well, here's what you do. Here's what here's what twelve other companies like yours did over the last year when they needed a different sales guy. Uh, let me tell you what happened with the wrong sales guy at Intuit or, or or Apple or whatever it was. You know, you tell you the anecdote from long ago ancient history you'd think, and you go, My God, that story's from nineteen seventy-eight, and it's exactly the information I need here. This is awesome. And so so you know, it's really in many ways one of the awesome highlights of my career that I was able to have him be my CEO coach during a key part of the company. And Randy Comisar from from Kleiner is really the guy to thank for that. Randy and Bill have worked together for years and years, and uh, he told Bill, he says, "Look, look, you're going to like this Martino kid." Um, and and the, the the one the one reason I'll point that story out is you know. Bill grew up. Bill grew up in a you know pretty blue collar setting in, in, in sub- the suburbs of Pittsburgh, yep. and you know and you know I, I grew up in the suburbs of Philly, and and you know we call our fun bullpen. I told you a little bit about kind of chip on your shoulder blue collar orientation, and and yeah you know what him and I were on the same page about that right away. We sit there. And people sometimes say to me, and I call BS on that. You guys are rich and successful guys. I'm like, you know what. There are certain kind of people, I don't care how much money you make or how successful you are, you kind of still have that hard work, blue-collar, chip-on-your-shoulder mentality. That's who Bill is, and that's absolutely who I am. And, and so I don't care how many companies I sell for how much money, I'll still be that kind of Rocky-style kid, you know, punching above my weight class. And that's who Bill is, and that's the kind of people Bill's always loved to coach
1: let me let me ask you this one one more question on bill i will go easy on it because i know he likes to keep, keep things you know you you said this guy has an amazing data set he's coached most of the people in the valley for for 25 30 years plus yeah why do you think everyone invites him in in the first place what characteristics what qualities does he have uh that make him so special okay So I'll tell it to you from my perspective. You know, the first time I met Bill was in one of these kind
2: of group 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 meetings. And and, you know, what I heard from Bill was I heard a lot of what I would describe as platitudes. Well, you know, when I did this, I did that. I remember telling my co-founder, Chris Law, I kind of said, you know, this guy, Bill, he's great and all. But those are a bunch of platitudes I can get from a book. Mm -hmm. And, you you know, I so I had that mentality at first. And then it took ten minutes for me to realize how incredibly wrong I was. So, 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 you meet him in a setting like that. You're at a Klein Perkins meeting or something like that. And then, and then he says, "Hey, Paul, look, how about we, uh, you know, how about we go to your office for an hour? Let's talk one-on-one for a few minutes." You get ten minutes into that one-on-one, and you go, "Oh my God, this <laughs> is. Wait a minute. Wait a minute." Okay, that guy talking to platitudes outbound, this guy, oh, they're the same guy. Holy crap. I, you know, you get 10, you get, uh, literally, I got 10 minutes into my one-on-one with him, and, and, and I don't even remember what he said or how he said it, but after 10 minutes of that one-on-one, I was like, this is an amazing thing, and you know, like I said, it's easy to dismiss him as the platitude guy in the public setting, but when you're one-on-one, which is what being a CEO is... If, if, if being a CEO, sitting in the corner office is lonely. It's scary. This guy's done it. He's seen it happen. He's been, at, he's been at some of the seminal moments in the history of Silicon Valley. And when he gives you that kind of feedback on what you need to do there, how you need to think, he looks at me and says, I think one of the things he said in that first meeting, he says, look, Martin, I'm going to tell you something. CEOs get paid for judgment. Now, do you think you're good at that or not? Like, because you know what? Two, three times a year, you've got to make a decision where you've got to go into your board of directors. And you've got to tell your whole board of directors. A hundred percent of you were wrong. I'm going out by myself. Now you only get to do that two or three times a year. You do that every board meeting. They go, oh, you know, this guy's a clown, right, right. but you do that. But you got to ask yourself if you got to the end of the year and didn't take on your board for being wrong about something for once or twice, where you would go out on a loan, I guarantee you, you're not taking enough risk. Like, wow. So, so, so you get to the end of the year and you ask yourself, did I really challenge my board because they were in groupthink on something that I was the only guy who knew I was right? And you get to the end of the year, you haven't done that once. You go, oh, crap. I, 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 I'm not running this company right. Now, that's the kind of piece of advice you get in a one on one with Bill. Where are you going to get that kind of advice from?
1: And, and who's got the credibility and the experience to do that? Let me, let me ask you this a lot of people who are running companies will be raising more money in the future, will be operating with their boards. Speaking to the the CEOs out there, what are the keys to board dynamics in your view?
2: Early stage and later stage are really
1: different things.
2: You know, you you are a 10-person company. You know, your board better be rolling up its sleeves working with you. I mean, you want board members who have built companies, who have been in trenches, who know how to give you advice, who know how to, you know, come over in your office and sit with you for six hours while you're working on your pricing plan. So I almost view early stage boards as as, as a bit of an extension of the management team and advisory group. And if those aren't the people who are on your board, you've got people just watching their money and they're not useful as board members, right? They're, they're not what you need. Don't get me wrong, there's a governance thing, you gotta have your actual board meeting once a quarter. You know, So I tell my CEOs, I'm like, you wanna do an early stage board, great, I'll be on it. Let's do a board meeting for an hour once a quarter. I'll be in your office as much as you need me. And if you wanna do a board meeting every month, awesome. Let's do it as a non-board mini. Let's have working sessions on key topics that we need to deal with. So I'll see you in January and February key working sessions. Uh, You know what? We'll do that again in March, but we'll do three hours. We'll do one hour of the boring board stuff, and we'll do two hours afterwards of the working session. Um, and, and so for early stage boards called sub 25 person companies, million two million in revenue, you know, I, I feel like you better have a board like that. Now right. you go get $12 million from matrix. You go get $25 million from Sequoia. You get $18 million from contest. By definition, it needs to change. It has to change. There's governance reasons why it has to change. And now you've got to have a more, I got a board, like I've got to do a packet. I've got real responsibilities around financials, et cetera. Cause you know what? The difference between now and then is you have a real company now. Back before we were all playing in the pond a little bit to see if we can we, we we can we we can build a little raft to get out of the thing, you know? Now 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 it works. Now you have responsibilities, you've got to show us that you can be a good CEO, you gotta show us you can hit your numbers, you gotta show us you can hire and fire and do all the things you need to do. And you know, I'm not in this, you know, in the trenches completely mode with you. You know, we're oversight on you as an executive. And so this is a perfect example. I use FanDuel as an example. I was on the board of FanDuel for four years. That first year I was on the board of FanDuel very much what I'm describing. In the trenches, advice, et cetera. You know, Comcast shows up. KKR shows up. Shamrock shows up. You know what? Those board meetings are big company board meetings now, and they need to be. This is a company making hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue You know, that's on the national stage. It needs to feel different. Um, and, and what I always tell my CEOs is I personally like to transition off the board and become your CEO coach. I like to do for my companies what Bill did for me. Now i know Bill Campbell, never will be, but I did learn enough from him to know what it's like to be a good CEO coach. And so I prefer when the big money comes in, I get off the board and I become CEO coach. And I would say that transitions work very, very well in some of our companies where if I was the board member, I fight like how to get off it. So I can stay as the person who's really given that trusted advice to the CEO and they can go have their board meetings and do all the governance and numbers and metric stuff that they need to do. But, you know, when it's four in the morning and they have a problem they can't solve, I want that phone call.
1: Thank you for that. That was so incredibly useful. And thank you for uh, telling us a little about Bill Campbell as well. I, I really appreciate that. I know the audience does. Uh, maybe my, my last question uh, and, you know, you feel free not to name names or name names, whatever you want to do. You have a very sort of unique approach to venture. Uh, you're very contrarian, iconoclastic. When you look out on the landscape, who do you like working with?
2: Oh, well, sure. I mean, that, that, that's easy. I'm not, not afraid to name names at all. I mean, there are... There are a bunch of funds that, there are a bunch of funds and people that are tremendously important to work with. You know, we host the post-seed conference every year with our buddies at Venture 51. Venture 51 is one of the only other post-seed funds in the world. And when there's 325 micro funds and there's like three or four of you that do post-seed, you're going to be good friends. I think Venture 51 is our most common co-investor in Fund 1. We host our conference with those guys. They're out of Phoenix. Love working with them. Um, you know, and then on the other side of it, kind of from a sourcing side and from a earlier investor side, I mean, look, floodgate and first round and Felicis and true, you know, these are three or four of the absolute best seed funds. And, you know, working with those, those funds, having relationships, the people who run those funds is great. Our first deal came to us from Phil Black at, at, at true. Phil literally called us and he says, Paul, you've been BSing about this idea for too long. I got, I got a deal that proves your model. You're going to go do it. I mean, now, now, I mean, how can you ever thank a guy enough for, for not only giving you the first deal as an introduction, no way to go win the deal, don't get me wrong, but teeing it up on a platter and calling your bluff because you've been sitting around looking at numbers too long. I mean, and that's, that's the kind of relationship and friendship that we've had. You know, I, I've known Josh Koppelman for 10 years. I know Maples for 10 years. And, you know, Jeff Clavier invested in a company Duncan and I were at called Trust back when he was at Reuters. So some random quirk of fate made it be that such that you know, five or six of the best 21st super angels were all people who I call friends. And so I felt like I had this unique window into, there's a puzzle that needed to be solved around postseed, And I was the kind of uniquely qualified from a data science perspective and, and a relationships perspective to go solve this problem. Uh, and by the way, as an entrepreneur, that's what you look for. I say this to my entrepreneurs all the time. What are you uniquely qualified to do in this particular business? And I said that to myself about bullpen. I'm like, I have the relationships from the seed funds and I have the data analysis orientation required for this business. This is something I was born to do, actually run this model. Um, and, and, you know, that's, that's, that, that's the entrepreneur product market that you look for. You look for that entrepreneur that's uniquely qualified to really do something. And there are plenty of businesses I'm not qualified to go do. I mean, there's tons of businesses I'm not qualified to do. This is one that was perfect for me because of that. And those funds that I mentioned, those people who run those funds, you know, they're the next great generation, uh, you know, after the John Doors and the, and, and the Mike Moritz's, et cetera. Those funds that I mentioned, they're going to be the names in the pantheon just
1: like that. Amazing. Paul, this has just been tremendous. Thank you so much, my friend. We'll have you back next year. Appreciate the time. Thank you. We'll be talking. Thank you, my friend. Be well. Show you around. Give
0: you a taste of business,
2: you know?